This is the Sermon Podcast of Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. Join us for worship Sundays at 8 a.m., 9 a.m., or 11.15 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www.acceptingall.com. Good morning. Good morning. The first lesson is from the 12th chapter of Genesis. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks be to God. Our reading from the life of Jesus today is found in John's Gospel. It's in the third chapter. There was a Pharisee named Nicodemus. He was a leader of the Jews. He came to Jesus by night and said to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. No one can do these things that you do apart from the presence of God. Jesus answered him, Truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Nicodemus said to him, Well, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into their mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What's born of the flesh is flesh, but what's born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I've said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, you are a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things. Truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. And if I told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. For God so loves the world that... God gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks. Please be seated. Thank you. Cherubs, a word of apology, that was about as holy and wonderful as it could be. I, I'm, I'm so glad that we didn't miss that. Thank you. It was really powerful. Um, and when I saw you holding hands, I was like, why don't we just stop right there? Because uh, that will really work for all of us. I just got finished reading a great book by Catherine Schultz. Uh, the book is called Being Wrong, and the only reason I read the book is because I saw her do a TED Talk of it. It was enough to convince me to, to buy the book. Uh, she claims that most of us assume in life that that um, that we are right about most things most of the time. I want to say that again. Most people think they're right about most things most of the time. 
Now, we're not like always in your face about that kind of thing, but that's kind of a deep bedrock way of thinking about the human condition. And she would say that that particularly applies to everything, but things like uh, our grasp of facts. Facts are not always the same, evidently. Or what we know about others, east-siders or west-siders. Or uh, even something like our memories. We might remember things differently. And certainly things like political convictions, and even, in her words, religious beliefs. We assume that most of the time we're right about most of the things. So what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about being wrong today. That's the title of the book, and I think it's a really important premise. In particular, what it might do for us during the season of Lent to practice being wrong Uh, Nicodemus is on a journey when he comes to visit Jesus in this gospel reading. He's a Pharisee. Not all Pharisees are bad. Uh, He's a respected scholar. He's a leader in the community, John says. His very first words to Jesus convey something about this theory about being right most of the time. And if you listen to it, you can hear it now. Listen to this. He says, we know about you, Jesus. We know you. We know that you're from God because only people from God can do the things that you just did. We know you. Most of us have a really hard time admitting, no, I don't know you. I know something about you, but I don't know you. A number of years ago, I was blessed to take a course in what's called tribes training. One of the members of our parish was a teacher in Worthington Schools, and they had this class, and I took the class with them. It was really wonderful. One of the the premises of tribes training is that you used to celebrate what you don't know. That's the reason why you learn, uh, because you want to learn new things. And and one teacher in particular uh, had kind of mastered how to talk about that. When somebody would ask something that she didn't know, instead of just saying, I don't know, she would say, you know, I don't know, but why don't we study that together? Uh, which I thought was great. She said, there is, a, there is a problem with that. She said, evidently she had said that so many times that one of her fifth grade students turned to her and said, did you even go to college? <laughs> so let's admit that there are times when it's easier to say I don't know something and there are times when it's much harder to admit that I don't know something. Uh, by way of example, I don't know how far it is from the moon to the earth. I suppose somebody knows that, but I don't really want to know, and I I don't have a great desire to know, and I don't know. And this gets a little more problematic, but I don't really know how many ounces are in a cup. And every once in a while, when I'm trying to do something in the kitchen, that becomes a problem. Um, I also don't know about all the issues that I have an opinion about when I vote. I know something, but I don't know all of them. And to go even really deeper than that, I mean, who really would want to sit in a group and admit with someone else, I, I don't know if God actually hears my prayers. I know what I believe about it. I don't know it. And I don't know if God can forgive all of even my sins. I believe God can. So we got a lot invested in what it is that we know. And sometimes so much so that it becomes very difficult. Um, uh, there are things about which we believe that we cannot be wrong. And therefore, we must be right. Because we can't be wrong. Now, notice that um, when Nicodemus comes to visit Jesus in the middle of the night, Jesus does not reply, Nicodemus, you're absolutely wrong. Um, That, by the way, rarely goes well. That's not a great way to begin a conversation with anyone, and especially those of you who are married. That's not a very good way to do it. Uh, It's more like uh, Jesus says, you know, there might be another way to think about this. 
She says, uh, you might not know as much as you think you know, and um, what I'm doing and who I am and what my kingdom is about, uh, you're going to need some help. You're going to need some help from above because it's not that easy to work out. Now, one of Nicodemus' strengths, and I, I suspect why he's a respected leader in the community already, uh, is that whether he understands what's going on at the moment or not, whether he knows all the details or not, he stays fully engaged in the conversation. And he wants to know. He wants to know what's going on more than he wants to be right. How can anyone be born without being born again, he asks. So he's on this journey, and... Um, because he's open to being wrong on the journey, the door opens just a crack. And that crack Jesus already speaks to is that the wind can blow through the crack, the wind of the Spirit. Now, we don't know the answer to this. I think it makes a difference in the story. Why do you think Nicodemus is actually coming to visit Jesus in the first place? Why would he go there? And in particular, why, why would he go in the middle of the night? Why would he go under the cover of darkness? Who exactly is he hiding from? What is it that he wants to know, and why does it bother somebody else? I don't think we have an actual answer to that, but I, I can tell you he's definitely curious. He has a reputation to uphold. Somehow being seen with Jesus in a public kind of way might be a little bit risky for him, perhaps professionally. Being wrong or being different, as we all know, can be difficult. A whole lot of communities uh, political, national, religious, insist on being right and are hard on those who are wrong. So his, his openness to Jesus, his questions, his, his uh, curiosity might come at some cost in his daily life. So, so he comes in the middle of the night and he doesn't just drop by. It's not a yes or no kind of thing. He knows that. He, he comes in the middle of the night and he stays. He stays late. He gets into the dialogue. There's no way the whole dialogue is printed here in the Gospel of John. And this is how the, the dialogue goes. Jesus, I, I'm just not getting this. How can someone enter into their mother's room again and be reborn? How can that happen? He's trying to understand. At the same time, he's not insisting that he's right. Jesus answered, no one and I hope you hear that part. No one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of the Spirit. Um, so let me be really clear about this. I think Nicodemus has got to just be like scratching his head. This is like one of the most confusing passages in all Scripture. It's, so, it's, got, it's got so much uh, allegory and, and so much imaginative language in it. Uh, he's come with this kind of absolute certainty about Jesus. He's got a conventional wisdom about Jesus and about God. He's got some experiences that others have told him about Jesus. And so he's got this data out there. He knows what it is that he knows. But he's also got these questions, and they're really big questions. And finally, he just blurts out, this doesn't make sense. How can this be? And Jesus says, and I've struggled with this for a long time, because I don't like to think of Jesus as rude. And there's one way to translate this. It's very snotty. Oh, you're a teacher of Israel, and you don't get that. But I think it's more like, well, you're one of Israel's teachers, and you don't even get it. The point's not really to bash him. The point is that even one of the best teachers, one of the most respected scholars in the best religious and moral system, if, if you don't know this, then nobody can know this. No one can do this without the Spirit. Tell me this isn't true. 
But most of us have this absolutely crazy idea that we can or should know everything about God. And that it really ought to be simple. Well, just tell you, tell me what it is to know about God, and I'll know everything about God. And it, it just doesn't work that way. And I'm trying to tell the truth here. Some people actually go to seminary so that they can learn more about God. And wow, are they ever surprised how that turns out. Like somehow learning about God ought to be simple. Or it ought to be obvious to everyone. Like the creature ought to know everything about the creator. How does that make sense? Well, this is the last time that we hear from Nicodemus. I would say that smart people know when to shut up, so it shows that he's smart. So let me just ask you, like, that's the story, that's what's happened. Where do you think it goes? Do you think Nicodemus gets it? Does he have the power to change? Um, is he capable of seeing things completely different than the way he sees it right now? We say things like, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, which, by the way, is starting to get really personal to me. But we also claim that the whole world is tilted toward justice, that goodness is stronger than evil, that love is stronger than hate. We want to believe that transformation, a change is possible, but it's really hard to do when you already know everything. Let me tell you this really quick story, and I would love to talk a long time about it, but the, the, the outline will be enough. Claiborne Paul Ellis, I'm pretty sure that's not a name people will know, lived in North Carolina most of his life. He was a very proud and active member of the Ku Klux Klan. Uh, April 4th, 1968, when Dr. Reverend Dr. Martin King was assassinated, murdered, he got his friends together and threw a party in the backyard. That's the kind of person he was. Spent his whole life blaming his own problems and the problems of his community and his country on people who were different than he was. At the same time, um, and this is where I really have to boil it down, uh, especially for people who are young, it was the time of great racial tension and it focused on desegregation, and that there even is such a word as a frightening thought. Desegregation means everybody of every color and every religion can go to the same school. And it took the government and the law and the military to make that happen. And Joe Becton is the guy's name. He was in charge of making desegregation happen in Durham, North Carolina. And Joe Becton was a person of faith and a person that believed that goodness is definitely stronger than evil and great, and love is greater than hate. And and so he, he had a vision, and he envisioned that this can happen. It can happen in our community. And his first idea was that he would get two people of differing views, and they'd have a panel discussion, and they'd invite the whole city to come part of the panel discussion. And he invited, on the one hand, Claiborne Paul Ellis. And on the other hand, he invited a woman named Ann Atwater, who was a community organizer, an activist, outspoken, and African-American. You can still watch the black and white videos. It didn't go very well. Claiborne Ellis refused to sit down because I don't sit with people of color in public. Well, the whole thing blew up. A couple of days go by. Most people would quit their job. But Becton says, you know, I still think this can work. And he sends an invitation to each of them and says, I want to have a private breakfast with you somewhere where there's no cameras and nobody else there. Just, just with, but what he didn't tell the other is I invited both people. And they got together over breakfast and they started to talk. And he said, whoa, 
I don't want to talk to you about anything. I only want you to do one thing. I want each of you to tell the other about your children. And Ann Atwater went first. And she shared how hard it was to live in a country where people wanted to kill their bodies. Where every day she had to tell her daughter how beloved she was, that she wasn't what people said she was. And this is uh, Paul Ellis now, card-carrying member of the KKK. Before she could finish talking, he just started bawling. And maybe for the first time in his life, he looked across the table at a person of different color and realized that it was a human being just like him. I can't tell you how moving it was for me uh, last Sunday afternoon to go down to Alul Bates. Some of you here were there. Um, 13, 14 members from Lord of Life, maybe 100 or so people were there. I want to be really upfront about it. It was like kind of a gathering of the choir. No, nobody came that was all bent out of shape about anything. There wasn't people, Paul Ellis and Ann Atwater weren't gathering at this. But on the other hand, um, different people, different religions, different cultures, different genders, different economics, different experiences, different nationalities, different citizenship. And we didn't solve a single one of the world's problems. We didn't even talk about the world's problems. Um, at best, God might have opened a crack in some of our hearts so that the Holy Spirit could blow around and solve some of the problems within us. But that wasn't really the point. The point was to get together and let the Spirit work. Listen to this little tiny piece from Claiborne Ellis' biography. It's written some 35 years after that event that I described. He writes about that day where they had breakfast. He said, I began to see, here we are, two people from far ends of the fence. That's a North Carolina phrase if there ever was one. From far ends of the fence, having identical problems accepting her being black and me being white. And from that moment, I tell you, that gal and I worked together for good. Really, he said, I began to love that girl. Somewhere along the line, Claiborne Paul Ellis began to consider that he might be wrong, that everything he ever knew might not be true, that he might not have all the answers. They might not be who he thinks they are. Almost to me sounds like no one can see the kingdom of God without being born of the Spirit. I've wanted to suggest today a Lenten discipline. I know we're a little late in that process, but um, it's a deeper one and a harder one. It's really easy for me to give up chocolate because Ann doesn't allow chocolate in our house that much anyway, so it's really easy to give up. Uh, But this one is a little more difficult. Um, I want to recommend that every day, in some form or another, you say to someone out loud, You know, I could be wrong. I could be wrong about this. I could be wrong about that. I could be wrong about this person or that person. I might not know everything there is. I don't have all the answers. If you're married, let me tell you, that's going to be a little... I could be wrong about this, honey. We might end up listening to each other. We might actually end up listening to God... And what God might want to do with us in the world. Uh, If you were raised in the church, especially if you were raised in a church where you memorize Bible verses, um, I I bet a pretty significant part of my paycheck this week on that this today in the gospel reading was one of the first verses you ever memorized. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Think about this for a moment. Nicodemus heard that the first time. He didn't hear it repeated to him or memorized. He heard it for the first time. God so loves this world that he gives his son. And then, years later, when Jesus' bruised and broken body is being taken down from the cross, and everybody else is deserted, there are only two people who risk showing their care for Jesus. And one of them's name is Nicodemus. If God can use Nicodemus and Claiborne Paul Ellis being wrong, uncertain, imagine what God would be able to do with us and with the church. Amen.